Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. And I think the better informed people are, uh, really, the more generous they become. And generosity we like a lot. Um, wanted to call that to your attention. Let me take just a minute to explain to you a little bit about the city of Ephesus. Because the book is called the book of Ephesians. The New Testament has a lot of activity recorded in the city of Ephesus. It was the fourth largest and the fourth influ most influential city in the entire Roman Empire. It was an intellectual city as well as a commercial center. It's estimated that the population was somewhere between 250 and 300,000. It was a large city. Academically, it's only the only place in the Roman world that was considered superior to Ephesus was Alexandria in northern Egypt. Alexandria had the largest and most influential library and learning center in the ancient Roman world. Academics came from India, Pakistan, all through the Middle East, from England, all, and all over Western Europe to study there. When the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew into Greek, it was done in Alexandria. Alexandria had that largest library. Ephesus was second to it. And I think I told you at one time before that they were actually competitors in that arena. And so the mayor of Ephesus attempted to hire the librarian in Alexandria. The mayor of Alexandria arrested him so that he couldn't go to Ephesus. They had that kind of competition in the, in the area of academics. In the city of Ephesus, the Apostle Paul spent more time there than anywhere else as far as we have a record of his activities. He was very successful in spreading the gospel there, and there were no church buildings. They were just what we call house churches. There are a lot of those in Africa where we go to visit and to teach. Each one of those house churches had a shepherd, or sometimes they're called bishops, sometimes shepherds, sometimes elders, all describing exactly the same office in the church. And there were house churches scattered all over that area. Most of them met either on Saturday evening or Sunday evening. Now, the reason they met in the evenings, and we know this from the 20th chapter of the book of Acts, the reason they met in the evenings is often 
some of the members of their churches were slaves. And the only time they could get loose was in the evenings. And they would have a carrion dinner. Eat together. Have someone to read the scriptures for them. Because many of them couldn't read and write. And then they would have the Lord's Supper. They called that the agape meal. That was really the way they were just copying what Jesus had done when he instituted the Lord's Supper at the conclusion of the Passover meal. So it was, so we had these little house churches and they had an elder, pastor, shepherd, because he actually in the 20th chapter of Acts says that their job is to shepherd the flock. And they all met the Apostle Paul when he was going back to Jerusalem one year late in his ministry. Actually, it was the year he was arrested at a place called Miletus. And these shepherds met him there and they prayed together and he told them goodbye because the Lord had indicated this would be probably be the last time he would ever see them. And it turned out to be true. So it was a... And, and when, the book of Ephes, when the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, it was not a letter to a church or to an elder or to an individual. It was written to the church universal. And it, and it is actually a treatise on the way the church is to work. You want to know more about how the church is to function? You read a combination of the book of Acts that tells you how it started, and the book of Ephesians tells you how it's supposed to function. And so we're here in the second chapter. Now what I'm going to do uh, this morning is I'm going to read the entire second chapter from, this is not a translation, it's a transliteration, and it is it is. Uh, called the message and it allows it what it does is it, rather than a word-for-word translation which at times is hard to read he takes the idea and then he explains it in the language that you and I use every day and and if you do not have a copy of the message it's it's really a, a, especially for people who don't know anything about the Bible it's much easier to read and very clear so I'm going to read this second chapter, and, and the, what you have in your hands um, is a sermon in the sermon outline, is actually an outline of chapter 2. Then we're going to go through that outline, fill in the blanks, and then we're going to have, we're going to have a little talk about it after that. So here we go, and trying to, uh, uh, and this is small print, so we'll see how well I do. Chapter 2, Book of Ephesians. The Apostle Paul writes, It wasn't so long ago that you were mired in the old stagnant life of sin. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and then exhaled disobedience. We all did it. All of us doing what we felt like doing when we felt like doing it. And all of us were in the same boat. It's a wonder God didn't lose his temper and just do away with a whole lot of us. Instead, 
immense in mercy, and with incredible love, he embraced us. He took our sin-dead lives and made us alive in Christ. He did all this on his own with no help from us. Then he picked us up and set us down in the highest heaven in company with Jesus, our Messiah. Now, God has us exactly where he wants us with all the time in the world and in the next to shower us with grace and kindness in Christ Jesus. Saving is all his idea and all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play the major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we had done the whole thing. No. We neither make nor save ourselves. God did both the making and the saving. He created each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work he does. The good work he has gotten ready for us to do. Work that we'd better be doing. But don't take any of this for granted. It was only yesterday that you outsiders, and the outsiders here are Gentiles. So we could say, it was only yesterday that you Gentiles, uh, you outsiders to God's ways, had no idea of any of this. You didn't know the first thing about the way God works, hadn't the faintest idea of who Christ is. You knew nothing of the rich history of God's covenants and promises in Israel, hadn't a clue about what God was doing in the world at large. And now, because of Christ, doing, dying that death and shedding that blood, that you who were once out of it altogether are now in on everything. The Messiah, meaning Jesus, of course, has made things up between us so that we're now together on this both non-Jewish outsiders and Jewish insiders. He tore down the wall we used to keep up but to, that divided us and kept us at a distance. He, he repealed the law code with all, with all that, uh, that had become so clogged with fine print and footnotes that it hindered more than it helped. Then he started over. Instead of continuing with two groups of people, meaning Jews and Gentiles, separated by centuries of animosity and suspicion, he created a, a new kind of human being, a fresh start for everybody, that he's talking about the church. Christ brought us together through his death on the cross. The cross got us to embrace each other. And that was the end of the hostility. Christ came and preached peace to you outsiders and peace to us insiders. Because Paul speaks of himself as an insider because he was a Jew. He treated us as, he, he treated us as equals and so made us equals. Through him we both share the same spirit and have equal access to the Father. That's plain enough, isn't it? You're no longer wandering exiles. This kingdom of faith is now your home country. You're no longer strangers and outsiders. You belong here with as much right to use the name Christian as anyone. 
God is building a home. He's using us all, irrespective of how we got here, in what he is building. He used the apostles and prophets for the foundation. Now he's using you, fitting you in brick by brick, stone by stone, with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone that holds all the parts together. We see it taking shape day after day. A holy temple built by God. And all of us built into it. A temple in which God is quite at home. Meaning quite simply, if you are a Christian, God's spirit lives in you. Now what I want you to do is to pick up your sermon outlines and let's go through it. Get you a pencil, get you a pen, fill in the blanks, and then we're going to talk about it. Let's look first of all where it says the life of the lost earns God's wrath. People who aren't believers... People who are not followers of Christ are separated from God because of sin. God says he cannot live with it. And the word and, and the scripture says that we're actually dead in our sin. The word death, thanatos, as you know, means separation. So we're separated from God because of our sin. Secondly, even though we don't always know it, when we're not Christians, and even some Christians, live according to the values of this present age. The value system of this present age is what is promoted by most of the, politi most of the politicians. Because they... They feel they try to to feel where people are, what they're thinking, and how they feel, and then they develop their policies in order to appeal to those people in order to get their vote. The church, however, promotes the the values of the kingdom of God, and the two are always bumping heads. Without knowing it, in many instances. Well-meaning people who are not Christians are actually living according to what Satan dictates. They don't know that. And the reason they don't know it is Satan, the Bible says, disguises himself as an angel of light. He makes himself look like a good guy in order to deceive people. And he's really good at it. Lastly, a non-Christian lives according to his own selfish desires. He does what he wants to, when he wants to, how he wants to. And that in most instances is in contrast to the will of God. Sadly, a lot of new Christians who haven't grown or old Christians who haven't grown or just nominal Christians, you can't tell them from the unbeliever if you just watch their life. That's why the church is not as influential as it ought to be. Now let's go, and, and by the way, all of that, the Bible, Paul writes, 
has earned the wrath of God. And it will come. Because we reap what we sow in time. Now, when God saw all of this going on, that's when he enacted the plan of salvation. That plan was developed even before the foundation of the world. Because God knew that we were going to sin. Now, we'll talk about why and all that at a different time. But here's what he did. He looked at a world that was absolutely anti-God. As for they, were, they had many gods that they had made that would reflect what they wanted done. Primarily, they were after sex and money. That's, why the most, that's what most of the gods that existed before the church started were about. That's what they were about in Ephesus. And the, the, the Ephesus had a religious center there that was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world in the worship of the goddess Diana. Seeing all of this, God, who loved his people even though they were yet sinners, for the Bible says that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. We were in opposition to him. He saw our problem and he knew we couldn't do anything about it. So he was really merciful. Now the word mercy and grace are two sides of the same coin. Mercy means you don't get what you have deserved. Grace means he gives you what you haven't earned. Same same. He's been He was kind to us when we didn't earn it. He was gracious to us. And we're going to talk more about grace and how it should affect the way we treat each other a little later on. It was incredible love. And the love that he showed to us was something new to the ancient world. And it's pretty new to our world today too. It's called agape. It means an individual is so grateful for what God has done for him. That he was willing to sacrifice in order to benefit other people. You don't see much of it even in the church. Much to our shame. Because... The way, if you say you love God and don't love people, John says you're a liar and the truth isn't in you. The way you prove to God that you love Him is by the way you treat people. That's the reason we're starting to promote the concept here at church, just love God, love people. You'll see more about that. Immeasurable grace and kindness. Immeasurable grace and kindness. How much grace does it take to cover our sin? Well, everybody has to work that out for themselves, but it's a bunch. We'll discuss that before we leave. Next, God accomplished what we think is the unthinkable. He embraced us. He loved us. He reached out to us. He drew us close to him. He gave us what I call a heavenly hug. And now everybody knows I'm not big on hugs. Because I've got too many preacher friends who had at least one too many hug. And the results have been tragic. A friend of mine, I love him and he was a wonderful pulpit preacher. But he told me when his marriage fell apart and he was caught in the act of adultery, he said... I had one too many counseling sessions. 
Now, he not only did this, but he made us alive. He, he loved us, embraced us, took us to him, and made us alive. Now, this goes back to the book of Genesis. Because we're talking about here receiving the breath of God. You remember in Genesis, here's a pile of clay formed. And God called it Adam, which means man. But that was just a hunk of dirt until God breathed into him his breath. And he became a living person, a living soul. Now, man messed that up. But he didn't become alive until he received the breath of God. Let me tell you something. In this new thing that God is doing called the church. You're dead in your sin until you receive the breath of God into your life. Because the breath of God is really the Holy Spirit. God's presence breathed into you. We call it the new birth. The second. Well, we'll talk a little bit more as we go on. He made us an associate of Jesus and gave us representation in heaven. Now, here's the way this works. In our culture today, for some reason, and I don't know why, haven't figured it out, churches are kind of afraid of baptism. Now, I, I like the old... Uh, Greek Orthodox, they baptize, they dunk you three times face forward. They get you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We just simply get you once. But here's, here's what the Bible takes. Here's, here's the way it says. When you become a Christian, when you confess your sin and you're, you become united with Christ, you know what, how the New Testament says that we're united with Christ? It is typified in baptism. In the 6th chapter of Romans, he said that you're baptized into Christ, not the church. You're baptized into Christ. You, he then goes on and said, you're united with Christ. And baptism is, the, is, is what teaches, that demonstrates that to all who will see. That's why baptism should be public. And that's why if you haven't been dipped, you've been gypped. Because that's, it, that's what it teaches. And since we're united with Christ, we, we're, we're, we now are associated with him, where is he? When he left this world, he ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Right? Say, uh-huh. Yeah, you're doing good. And you know what he's doing there? If you are united with him, if you have become a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, you have him. And now we're going to use a legal term. I have always been harder on lawyers than anybody else because Jesus is hard on lawyers. And three of my kids studied law. God has a terrible sense of humor. So, he, so what is Jesus doing as he sits there next to the Father? The Bible says that he's making intercession or we have an advocate. That's a, that's a legal name, term. We have an advocate with the Father. 
speaking to, a, to the Father on our behalf. So that when we are judged and we come before the court of God, we have Jesus as our advocate. Now, what makes that even better is he's also the judge. You can't lose. And so he says, you and I have an advocate with the Father, Jesus himself, as a result of our association with him here on earth. And then it says, he not only, we not only have an he has given us employment in the kingdom of God. He's given us a job. Our job is primarily this. Finding lost people and introducing them to Jesus. And then loving them. And loving each other. It's that simple. And we're going to be asking a lot of you here pretty soon. Do you know anybody? Do you have a friend who isn't a Christian? Would you like to see them one to Christ? Maybe you'd like to be the person that baptizes them. If you don't like them very well, there's no law that says how long you can hold them down. Because <laughs> we want a, at least 100 baptisms and 100 new families here in this year. And if you're doing what God has told you he wanted you to do, this is the job he's given you and me. We may have a lot more than that. Because that's the job he's given us. We have employment in the kingdom of God. Now let's go on down to the last one here on your, on your study sheet. God united divided people. There isn't anybody who despised each other more than the Jews and the Gentiles in the first century. We still have a world divided. Just a world divided. And the only way they can come together, folks, is through Jesus Christ. It's not going to be political union, United Nations, all that kind of stuff. That's not going to work. It's well-intentioned, but it isn't going to work. The Jews and the Gentiles came to love each other and to sit at the same communion table and to be kind and loving to one another because of God's work. It takes a miracle for adversaries to love each other. Look at our world. The Muslim world is divided. Sunni, Shiite, they hate each other. The Saudis despise the Iranians. And you could go on from there. We have people who support Marxism as opposed to the free market system. We have the successful being envied by the unsuccessful and the politicians stirring it. We have the educated and the uneducated. We even have men and women up that are being set against each other. Women's liberation said, we don't need men anymore. And men saying, we don't need that kind of women. And so there is adversaries even there and wonder why the family has fallen apart. We have the religious and the unreligious. We have the conservatives and the liberals. Now everybody knows I'm a conservative. And if you're a liberal, when you get conservative like me, you'll be better. See, that's the attitude that is generally displayed. I don't mind telling you, 
I'm a conservative. I'm a registered Republican, but I love Democrats just as much as I love Republicans when they're in Christ. I not only love them, I defend them. I think they're nuts, but I defend them. Because we're one in Jesus Christ, and we're going to spend eternity together, not just a little time here on earth fussing about politics. So how can we all come together? We can only come together when we're one in Christ Jesus. He's the answer. You remember Billy Graham said for 50 years, Christ is the answer. He was spot on. Spot on. Okay. Now we've gone through here. And let me, let me mention this. When it comes to bringing people together, the church has had a hard time because they don't know their Bible. The church has had a hard time maintaining unity. And it's because of honest ignorance. Some people use the Bible as a rule book. And they judge other people by the rules that they lay down. Now here's the tragic. Anybody who does that will then be judged by rules. I don't want to be judged by rules. I want grace and mercy. Because you know what? I'm in a heap of trouble without grace and mercy. And so are you. But haven't you seen, haven't you seen Christian people who come up with rules... And they, you can find them in the Old Testament. That's what it was all about. But Christ nailed those rules to the cross, the Bible says. And now, if we're going to get along with each other, the only way it can work, husband, wife, Democrat, Republican, black, white, whatever the differences are, we can only come together as one if we give each other grace and mercy. That's the reason legalism is such a devastating thing in the church. We want to have the reputation of being gracious and loving people. Because without it, folks, we ought to take our shingle down and sell insurance. Because that's what, he, that's what Christ did for us. He gave us grace. He said the law and the prophets were until John. They've been laid aside. And Jesus came on the scene. And he said, If you've got a problem, I'll help you with it. Paul actually wrote in the 8th chapter of Romans in the first verse, There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no room for that. Let me talk about, before we wind this up here, let me talk about what we started off with there, about the things that earn the wrath of God. Because our culture, and in many cases churches, have the tendency to think that a real good guy a real good fellow who isn't a Christian ought to be able to go to heaven. And it's only these guys that are just real hell raisers that ought to go to hell. Let's talk about that just for a minute. 
And I'm going to use my own family because I know them better than anybody. My oldest brother was, was exceptionally bright, and my mother taught him a lot at home. He skipped a couple of grades, went to the University of Kentucky on a full ride when he was barely past 16 years old. He was one of those guys that was in military who was assigned to uh, the, the secret stuff in the Pentagon. And he was one of those guys that they taught speed reading to. You could look at a page. Now, this is really the truth because I checked him. He would look at a, a written page and he would read it this way. And I would say, Okay, now let me have that page. What did you read? And he could give it to you almost word for word. I never made that grade. Gene was the guy, that's my oldest brother, that whenever we had youth day at the church, he was the guy that did the preaching. Teenager. The second brother was named Chuck. Chuck got C's and occasionally a B because he didn't give a hoot about school. He liked beer. He liked women. He liked to drive a car like a maniac. He liked to raise hell. And he was really good at it. <laughs> and he had that reputation. A likable cuss, great personality, but that's who he was. So the image that Chuck had was, if he dies, he's going to hell and he deserves to because he's a hellraiser. I came along and I saw behind him, I saw how people talked about him, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And I went the other direction. I was one of these good guys. I was, you know, I was at church. I even went to, even went to prayer meeting on Wednesday night. Now, the reason I went to prayer meeting is because we got the car and we could go to Lucky Buck night at the drive-in theater after, afterward. But that's, you know, that's, there's more to that. I got almost, my grades were really pretty good. They're not as good as Alice K's, but they were pretty good. I was second in my class. I was president of my class. I was captain of the basketball team, captain of the baseball team. I was a good guy. But the reason I was a good guy had nothing to do with the kingdom of God. The reason I was a good guy is because that kind of behavior benefited me. I like for people to say, hey, man, he's he a nice guy. I had lots of successes. The only reason Alice Kay married me is because I was a star, you know. <laughs> I know that. That and the fact I had a 1953 Ford with sexy lights in the back seat that she just couldn't stay away from. <laughs> Ford Victoria, a nice car. Anyway, now here's, the, here's what you need to know. 
Since I didn't do that for anything other than selfish reasons, had I died, I'd have gone to hell just like Chuck would. Because it isn't how good you are or how bad you are. It's the, do you know Jesus? Because he paid for our sins. He died in our place. The worst thing that I, I was thinking, what's the worst thing I ever saw? I mean, the scariest thing I ever that's related to what we're talking about here. I was the pastor of a, a church up in Illinois before coming to Ohio. Prairie Green Township was, a, and, the, and the church building, they were just wonderful farm people, really good to us. There was, we had a beautiful Bedford Stone building, nice parsonage beside of it where we lived. And that property where the building was, and the parsonage was located, was given to the church by a guy who lived just down the road from there who had a grain elevator, and he was extremely wealthy. Lots of property, lots of land, and that beautiful land up there is flat and rich and fertile. And His wife was faithful there at church. He, he never came. But he was the best-liked man in Prairie Green Town. He was generous. He was kind to people. His word was as good as gold. But he wasn't a Christian. Everybody loved him. If there was ever a guy in that area whose quality of life could have given him the right to go to heaven, I suspect it would have been he. The night that he died, we gathered down in the house. His family was there. And he was lying there, and the death rattle had already begun, and you knew that it wouldn't be long. He was semi-conscious. It came and went. It was somewhere after midnight. and I don't remember the exact time that... He, without any warning at all, suddenly sat up in the bed just like somebody had pushed him up. And he screamed, oh God, no. He fell back on his pillow. He was dead. I've had a lot of time to think about that. I almost think for the good of his family who were there, God gave him a peek into what hell looks like. Because we really don't know. It just means we're separated from all of God's influence. And yet... He was the nicest guy about you ever met. Folks, that's why you need Jesus in your life. He will give you salvation. It doesn't cost anything. He will give you 
The promise of eternal life doesn't cost anything. He will give you the capacity to love people that you don't even like and to do good to them when they need it. Because that's what Jesus did for us. To love those that you may not even like. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He embraced us. He accepted us. He did good to us. And he wants to give you the capacity to do the same thing. If we could only develop the reputation as a church of being the most loving people on the face of the earth, we could sell tickets and still have a full house. That's where we got to go. And so if we're ever going to get to there, we've got to, we've got to prove to the world that we love God. And the way you do that is by the way we treat each other. It's that simple. Treat each other. And then we actually are representing God by the life that we live. If there's anybody here who wants to be a follower of Jesus, I'll just stay up here. You make your way up if you want to. Give me a call this week. I don't want you to fear death. And right now, before we go home, even though I'm not a big hugger, just give everybody a quick hug and head out of here. And God bless you. Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.